Hi everyone, it's Joakim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this podcast episode, I'm talking with Klaus Gersting, who is the founder and CEO of Phoenix Games, a new kind of European gaming conglomerate with six gaming studios under its belt. In this discussion with Klaus, we talk about luck and taking advantage of lucky moments when you're building a game studio and how the mobile games industry has evolved, what characterizes teams that can go from zero to hugely profitable and what well done mergers and acquisitions looks like in gaming. But before we go to this episode, Here's a few words from our sponsors. Are you a mobile game developer who's looking to try something new on the ad creative side? My top pick would be influencer generated content, IGC by Opera Event. Influencers and actors will make specific content from your games and Opera Event will deliver you high quality video ads that highlight the best parts of your game. Go to getigc.com to see some examples. That's getigc.com. At Pollen VC, we're committed to helping game developers improve their financial literacy. That's why we've launched CFO Resources, a new section of our website that hosts a free suite of calculators and financial planning tools to help you plan your business and grow faster. Our financial forecaster tool helps you project cash flows and visualize your ROAS and LTV based on metrics you provide. And if you're a hyper-casual developer, you need to check our hyper-casual velocity calculator. Head over to pollen.vc and click CFO Resources to get started. All right, we're live. Hi, Klaus. Welcome to the show. Hey, a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Sure thing. Uh, we've been talking over like DMs and things like that for a few years, but never really like had a proper conversation. So this is going to be a really interesting chat today, for sure. <laughs> yeah, happy it <laughs> finally happens. I mean, there was no chance to run into you in any conference over the last, I guess, 18 mm. months or so. Um, yeah. But yes, it's a pleasure to be here. And it's close to absurd that we never met in person so far. Yeah, exactly. But hey, I, I got my first question for you, which I usually want to cover a person's like original story, kind of like, uh, how did you make your way into gaming back in the day? Um, that's a, a cool story, actually. So I, I'm basically a gamer for every second of my life that I can remember. I was lucky enough to have uh, a dad who was running the IT center of a university. So we had internet at home when it still was called ARPANET, like back in the days before there was any consumer product whatsoever. But uh, smart students obviously had already created games on this new exciting piece of technology. And so there were like first text-based multi-user dungeons and my dad showed them to me and I wasn't able to read or speak English, obviously. So I was sitting on his lap when I was like five years old and we were doing this thing together and it was all exciting and we were playing with like real people from all over the world and he was live translating back and forth and 
um, it was super amazing uh, and became like a father-son thing that we regularly did together. So I uh, have a very close to a connection to uh, computer games per se and uh, would say that I lost my heart to games that day. Um, it was followed by the typical nerd geek childhood. So all the stuff that uh, pen and paper role-playing games, tabletop strategy games with meters of rule books and always plenty of, of video games um, on all the platforms that were available back then. Um, nice. I ruined three university studies playing too many games but spent a lot of time in Counter-Strike, uh, the 4X game Alpha Centauri in that period of time and various versions of Civilization. Um, and uh, Baldur's Gate uh, needs to be mentioned in that context as well. Um, and then uh, was lucky enough to be able to follow through on a stupid bet, build a browser-based online game and uh, create my first company based on that, uh, which was called Gameforge. Hey, like, I think that's where I sort of like want to focus on first off in this discussion, because like the audience consists of lots of founders who are just getting started. What are, what are the, some of the things that you did early in your entrepreneurial career to propel you to this success uh, with Gameforge and later on with your future ventures? Um. And that's an interesting question, because in different times in my life, I would have given you a different answer. Um, obviously, today I will give you the one of today, which is it was mainly luck and timing. Um, yes, I believed in games. Yes, I'm probably not completely stupid. Yes, I was lucky enough to co-found the company together with somebody who could mentor me and teach me a lot of things. He was like 10 years older and Alex is still running the company today. Um, so a lot of the setup was done right, I think. But beyond that, uh, it was luck and timing. It was the time where uh, broadband internet became available, where multiplayer became available, where there was no penetration of local language games in most of the countries that are not falling under eFix. Um, and all of that, and it was the emergence of free-to-play, right? So in Korea and Japan, it was already a, an existing and valid and proven business model, but in the Western Hemisphere, it didn't exist. Um, so all of these things together created an opportunity for immense growth that, and it was not as if we did find that through elaborated analytics or market reports or thinking about the whole situation strategically. It was the other way around. I had a browser-based game, Alex had a browser-based game. It was pretty obvious that our strengths and weaknesses did complement each other. Um, and so we set out on a journey. Um, in hindsight, it could have failed and then I probably would be wearing a suit every day and go to a crowded office and hate my life. Um, but it did start out to be a valid business and hence I uh, now enjoy a career in gaming and games investment. It's uh, funny how the little things sometimes uh, give you a completely different direction in your life. Yeah, you were talking about like your nowadays sort of understanding why like what you did there and uh was it was you mentioned luck and timing like 
how do you think entrepreneurs can pre prepare better for you know those luck and timing moments um i think the timing can somewhat be influenced by thinking about it analytically before starting something just that i didn't do that because i was young and stupid i mean i was 21 years old um it doesn't mean that it's not possible of course you can look at trends on a micro and macro level and of course you can derive decisions and estimates of market timings from that um, speaking to the luck perspective i think that you can force luck to some extent and looking at the other side of the coin so what would i have done back then if i would have thought about it analytically on the luck perspective i would have looked for somebody who did a few of the things before happened as a coincidence um, and all the other things were like following from that um, i think you can force luck by taking good decisions and it's not as if we back at Gameforge in the early days and especially in the more uh, sophisticated ones didn't take good decisions but it was luck and timing and then nothing and then maybe four or five decisions that we took over the turn of the years that really really made the difference hmm. as sort of like your career progressed from there did you see entrepreneurs who you worked with sort of take advantage of this forcing luck uh, have you seen instances where it plays out in their favor um an obvious example to mention uh, is always Ilka, uh, Supercell Ilka, that is. Um, I, was, I was lucky enough to accompany him on this journey for a little bit and in a very passive role. But um, what I really enjoyed there was the experience, dedication and focus of that team that could not be derailed whatever came their way. Um, and while maintaining the um, flexibility and the opportunistic approach to quickly realize if something doesn't work we should do something completely else I invested in Supercell back in the days when they were still doing hardcore games on Facebook as we all know that st uh, string didn't work out um, and they were smart and self-reflected enough to do that and then completely run the ship in a completely different direction and execute on that brilliant um, particularly in comparison to how I myself with Alex built Gameforge as a company, it felt so amateurish in hindsight, I guess. Um, so Ilka probably is, is, a, is a great role model when it comes to that. Um, yeah. There are other entrepreneurs as well that um, I met over the years in gaming and outside of gaming that are particularly great in, in breaking those things down and kind of setting themselves up for success. Um, in the end, it's always about the people, the people who you surround yourself with, the people that bring strength, weaknesses, network to the table that complement your strengths and weaknesses and challenge you to be a better version of yourself. And I think that is the underlying pattern that forces luck to some extent. Excellent points. Totally agree with that. Uh, let's talk about 
Phoenix Games now, what you're doing currently mm-hmm. in 2021. Right, but let's go back a bit on the thesis that you had for Phoenix Games when you started out. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yes, of course. Um, so looking at the gaming market, and that was um, yeah years back already, what became pretty obvious was that, surprise, surprise, the market is getting more competitive. Um, and being more competitive um, in the free-to-play segment always means a few things. It means that production costs of titles go up. It means that you need more marketing money on top of that. It means that the probability of games succeeding is getting lower and lower. Um, and it means that you need to be great at more and more things to be able to compete. Building a successful game is just not good enough anymore. Um, starting from the beginning of those underlying patterns that that were there, um, the game development per se, I, I tend to describe with rolling the dice. And the only thing that you know in advance is that the next dice roll will be incrementally more expensive than the last one. And that you need to roll a higher number than the time you rolled it before to be successful. Which is the very definition of a super risky and really crappy business model. Um, it is really challenging. And yes, there are experienced entrepreneurs who can counter these probabilities that go against their favor. And there are lucky kids who can do themselves, or you could just be lucky. Um, so this is not saying that there is no emerging success and there can't be emerging success happening, but the probability of it happening becomes lower and lower. Um, on top of that, diversity and skills um, leads to the fact that the average developer um, gets further and further away from being competitive uh, because you need to be great in so many more things. Um, back in the days, we set out with my second company, which was Flare Games, to kind of influence those things for the favor of the developer. The underlying theory was, hey, let's build a third-party publisher that complements developers in skill sets and resources, um, and let's create something together, together that is more successful than either of us could on their own. Let's share the proceeds and everybody has more and is more happy and finds more players and more success. And in the same moment creates innovation and momentum in a market that due to its competitiveness has less innovation by the day. Um, Mm -hmm. That worked for quite a while, but in the end we realized that Publisher-developer relationships are not the ones that are best suited for a world where you don't deliver a product but a service in the end. Um, It is different companies. They have different interests and different strategies. And sooner or later, they will not run into the same direction. And while that is the right thing for each of those companies, um, it is for sure not the right thing for the product that everybody invested in. Um, And that makes, yeah success less likely um, than in a scenario where interests are fully aligned. As a consequence of that, we went back to the drawing board and founded a new company, uh, Phoenix Games, which I'm running for two years and something now. Um, the observation is still the same. What we the, the angle that we are approaching it from today is let's fix the alignment first. Let's fix the incentivization first. 
and then build everything on top of that. So with Phoenix games, we have capabilities that can supplement developers and most of them are uh, tech-based, so narrow AI and machine learning, um, uplift products that touch the main levers of the free-to-play business model and bring instant benefit to studios that we work with. However, we acquire those studios to make sure that we are one big and happy family. Um, every entrepreneur that joins our family uh, not only enjoys the proceeds of selling his studio, but a participation in the uplift as well as a participation in the ultimate goal of making Phoenix successful. So I literally report to all the entrepreneurs that joined our family and whose studios were acquired by Phoenix. Um, on top of that, and that ties a little bit back to my belief in great people and entrepreneurs, all of these guys are super smart. Um, and all of these guys are amazing entrepreneurs who found some success in this market and it's really, really hard to do so. Um, so having all of these great minds think about how could we make Phoenix more successful and discussing this every once in a while and checking in and getting uh, impact from all of those guys, I believe increases our probability of being more successful and maybe is my personal way of forcing luck this time. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like this model where you have a lot of studios together, operating together, is it's interesting because there's not a lot of room for inefficiency there uh, compared <laughs> to like in in a big uh, you know corporation that acquires studios, for instance, that where you where you cannot know what is you know inefficient <laughs> really, like as a like a, somebody who might be joining. Um, joining the group so yeah it's interesting yeah, I fully agree I mean I think in in the end I'm I'm not trying to build something that is big because big organizations are slow I, what I want to have is a flotilla of speedboats um, all run by a weathered and experienced captain that can react on micro storms in his area so we are completely decentralized when it comes to culture uh, pipeline, development, every development decision is taken for any game that any of our studio has. What we at Phoenix try to do is making sure that the flotilla, flotilla is roughly going in the same direction um, and that no individual vessel uh, takes risks that endanger the whole thing. Um, other than that, we try to uh, have our captains, our studio founders and entrepreneurs in charge as far as it is reasonably possible because in average they are closer to the games and the players than we will ever be. And the same is true for the talented individuals and craftsmen and craftwomen that are working on the game. And so they will in average always take better decisions than we, are, we will. Um, and that is something that we see as a strength not as a weakness can you can you talk about the companies these speedboats like you mentioned that you are attracting to the phoenix games what kind of like characteristics these companies have um so it's it's game development studios usually they do something in free to play because that's where we can help best or are in a transition towards free to play so we don't need a fully fledged all skills are staffed free to play studio to work with, but a studio that is on its way to free to play 
um, we can help on that journey and avoid to make mistakes. Um, from that to full-fledged free-to-play studio, we are pretty platform and geography agnostic, but happen to be mobile first, and so far all our studios are in Europe. Um, we um, strongly select studios that we work with by the founders and the type of founders and mindset of the founders. I guess what we are looking for is uh, the, the entrepreneurial superpower. While all of them have like found success in the super competitive market, we are looking for uh, self-reflected people who look for personal growth, who are willing to change their views um, and are ready to admit that sometimes they are right and sometimes they are wrong. They have a strong opinion about things, but are not beyond criticism. Um, and are open-minded and outspoken to criticize themselves. Because in the end, we all want to grow as individuals. We want to grow as an organization and how we approach things. And for that, we need people inside who take decisions, who challenge us to live up to that ideal. Um, the studios usually have found some success. So uh, translating that into numbers, they usually are somewhere between like five to 15 million in revenue or so and two to eight million also in, in EBIT. Um, so solid businesses um, where we then see and identify clear things that we can bring to the table. Historically speaking, we have acquired studios and just by applying our uplift tools, there was a substantial bump in both revenue and bottom line. And that then leads to much more leeway and much more freedom to reinvest in stuff that you believe in. So we try to get the entrepreneurs that join us out of this hamster wheel of now I need to ship or need, need to look for the next game that then launches while the other one is deteriorating, while I always have to prioritize my resources between the first one and the second one, because the first one is paying the bills currently, but if I don't build the second one, who pays the bills of the future? And this is the conundrum that every game entrepreneur finds themselves in sooner or later. Um, this is the one that we are trying to solve to give them more time, more flexibility and more ability to actually make the most of what they have, get out of this hamster wheel and unlock more creativity and innovation. What do you think your relation, like the relationship should be with flexibility, with freedom, with sort of creative, uh, fostering kind of like that freedom for the development teams? versus like rapid development, quick soft launching, you know, MVP, like Unity Asset Store graphics, uh, <laughs> like just launch it already. What, what do you think the relationship uh, that works really well when a studio is growing? What do you think? Um, I don't think there is one answer to that question, but a lot of individual answers depending on skill set, mindset, uh, studio situation, studio financials, and the way that they enjoy there. Um, in principle, learning something early is always better than learning something late. So fast iteration, uh, quick testing, quick to market strategies to get some fields and numbers, it always makes sense um, because it just allows you to use your resources on something that is worth it. And that is more time than money, because in the end, everybody who works on games wants to ship a successful game. And 
for one or the other reason, they might believe that the one they are working on will be the one that will be successful. Um, validating that as soon as possible and just moving on if you are wrong is probably a smart thing to do just in terms of doing the most with the time that you have on this planet. And if your personal mission is to find a great game that is really, really successful, work on that in that period of time that you have here. Um, so I think that is in principle a true statement. However, it is not easy. However, strong beliefs leads to blindness or wrong interpretation of data. And all of that is cool and natural um, if it isn't too much of it. Because at some point in time, it just endangers resources. It, ch it changes risk levels throughout the portfolio and throughout the studio. And it makes things harder. And that is, I guess, one of the reasons why we look for self-reflected, self-criticizing people who are the first to say, I believe in this, but maybe I'm wrong. This mm -hmm. is a totally valid thing. Um, and this usually leads to exactly the situations where you learn fast, iterate fast, fail fast, um, to then focus on something that really works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But think about like learning. You've been uh, looking at and participating in M&A for for a while like what kind of failures did you experience early on and what have you learned from kind of like those situations where things m might have not gone the way that you were planning um my main learning i guess is really listening to the founders of the studio which i always tried and it's sometimes hard um, because obviously we approach the whole thing, how we build Phoenix with a certain philosophy in terms of how we see the market, how we see our studios and how they should be run and how we see the alignment of incentivization. And that is a philosophy and method that works for us because we think it's the right way to approach things. Not everybody has to agree with us, obviously. And what I did particularly in the first year was often ending up in a situation where I was discussing with the founders whose approach was right and not while trying to convince them to join us because they really had an amazing studio. And uh, I saw a lot of potential to make more of what they had and they were smart people. And I believed in uh, the combination of, of people are smart and awesome things happening, right? But in the end, they philosophically thought about things differently or they um, had the desire to not commit long term, but maybe take cash off the table and leave, which is totally valid as well, right? Just not for the way how we think about things. Then they probably talk to somebody else. And so I, I feel that I wasted some entrepreneur's time. Uh, during that period trying to convince them that our way is better for them as well while they clearly wanted something else. Um, so nowadays we are really trying to understand even better how entrepreneurs tick what they want, what they need, uh, what they think they want and need because those are not necessarily the same things. Um, and uh, yeah, learn quickly from that to find a way to make things work or identify that it won't work, both of which is fine.
Let's uh, switch here gears here a bit and, and talk about the mobile games industry in general. Like, uh, I'm su- super fascinated about the the sort of like empowering the teams and giving independent teams the 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 role of uh, guiding sort of like where the games are going. Uh, very much a bottom down down approach, bottoms up approach. Like, um, and the CEO like Ilka says the being the he he being the least powerful CEO and like do you see this supercell style of uh, game making actually working for other companies as well? Um, so first of all, the least powerful CEO thing is a very very nice PR line. Let's let's translate it into practicalities, right? Sure. Um, what he is referring to is he is not interfering with team decisions consciously, and. That is a philosophy of how he runs his company. Of course, he is a powerful CEO because he is the CEO of Supercell. Who is not powerful if he isn't, right? It, it, it just, he is a powerful CEO. He chooses not to use his power to change decision-making processes. And that is a philosophical decision and not a description of a state. Um, that being said, um, I think it's a very, very powerful work way of, of, of approaching things if, and here comes a lot of things, it is very strongly dependent on the character strength as well as the skill level of every team member. Because if you have an amazing team that is all where every team member in itself is basically an entrepreneur and is looking at the world as an entrepreneur, um, then it is totally possible to do that. And looking back at the early days of Supercell and looking at the teams back then, that was how the teams were put together. All of these people have been around the block. They have been doing it for quite a while. And they have been doing it in a very egalitarian environment where they were used to and trained to work and think like that. Um, Replicating that with a new team, with a growing company is really, really challenging. And looking at Supercell and how they have been doing over the last years, there has not been a really great game for quite a while. And I guess there is a reason for that. I'm obviously not on the inside and can't talk about Supercell in an educated way. Just what I'm observing is that the philosophy of pushing all the decision-making down to the individual team depends strongly on the skill sets and philosophy of each individual team member. And if one of them is not that, it's already broken. Um, In principle, I fully believe in this method and Uh, That is exactly why we approach it like that in Phoenix, right? Um, Decision-making is with the entrepreneurs. It is with the founders who have proven that they can be successful in this super competitive market space. There can't be that much wrong with putting decisions their way and helping them making better decisions even by sparring with them about it and supplying them with more resources to do so. Um, But um, it is a tough approach that is just so much harder to manage and so much harder to give direction, which um, 
is a wanted side effect, but poses its own unique challenges. Yeah, well, I, I guess the question then is like, what is, what is a more optimal, optimal, optimal model for, for a game studio where it, you don't want sort of like each individual to, to you know, carry a, a huge burden or even like pull their weight like every day like that way. Uh, what do you think? I don't think there is one answer to that question. It so much depends on the state and scale of the company that you are talking about. Um, so, of course, there are companies that have like thousands of game developers somewhere in a room locked up and they produce a game every two weeks. And is this really the way I would want to run a company myself? Probably not. Can it work? Of course it can work. I think every approach in principle can work if set up right, if right decision making, if great individuals, yada, yada, yada. Um, the question is how to distribute responsibility and decision making authority. Um, and every enterprise, every entrepreneur has to find its, its own answers to that. I mean, even even looking at the in the Phoenix ecosystem, which is like really little in comparison to like the global games market, obviously, and rightfully so, we have studios that are egalitarian and democratic and basically discuss about most things um, and find like majority decisions or uh, even decisions where everybody is is, is trying to agree. Um, and that sometimes makes them slow. But sometimes the decisions are just better because all aspects of a topic are talked about. We have other studios that are structured in a way that one individual calls every major shot. And that is quick and efficient, probably, um, but has other disadvantages, right? Um, I don't interfere with those because those entrepreneurs found ways how to make it work for them. And that's the unit that we are trying to optimize on, the individual studio. Our job is to complement then this studio, that culture, those people to enable them to be more successful. Our job is not to interfere and change the culture because we philosophically believe that there is a superior culture or way to approach game development per se. Obviously, I personally have a favorite philosophy and I think it's reflected somewhat in the way Phoenix does it. Running a game studio probably I would lean towards something that is along the least powerful CEO line with an asterisk on it with a bit of small print um, but philosophically more in that direction but there is no right or wrong here. There is an appropriate for the acting individuals. Hmm. Yeah, excellent point there. I, I want to talk about uh, this other hot topic as well, the UA credit line, uh, which is sort of emerging now quickly. Um, mm -hmm. There's there's providers out there who are granting UA credit line. There's Supercell funding Metacore with their merch game, Merch Mansion. And then I've heard now that several uh, publishers have also adapted a model of credit line where they they sort of like start operating more as a UA credit operator and they give assistance to the developer to actually run the show um, but they, they work as, as a 
quote-unquote bank there. How do you see this sort of like model? Is it sustainable? Um, so there are a lot of nuances to this model, obviously, right? Um, so take my reply with a little, little bit of caveat and probably not applying to every single instance of it out there in the marketplace. Um, credit lines, in my perspective, are close to being ripoffs, uh, quite frankly. Um, if you do the math, the interest rates that you pay are really, really high. Um, and if you would be a bank, you would not be allowed to charge those interest rates for good reasons. There are provisions in the law for that in every single civilized country on the planet. However, since they are not a bank, um, they are able to charge comp composite interest rates that are somewhere in the middle digit, um, middle two digit range per year, which is insane if you think about it. That being said, obviously it can make sense for a developer to still tap into it if they have a game that can be scaled substantially faster and profitable through that. If you have that, it still makes sometimes, it still can make sense sometimes. So you don't have to worry about raising money, um, getting diluting, uh, getting dilution in your studio cap table, uh, getting somebody on the table who wants to tell you what to do because investors have a tendency to try to do that. Um, it is a pro and con there. The challenge is when a developer who does not have such a title or has a title that is scalable in the beginning, there is a golden cohort effect, and then it is projecting into the future that this will continue, which it never does, um, and then taps into a line and brings themselves into a critical dependency. In the end, you weaken your position in any future negotiation. And when you have a lot of outstanding loans with a party that has an interest into what you have, the outcome is very, very predictable. Um, and it's not in favor of the entrepreneurs. So what I can only employ founders to do is very, very carefully look at the small print and test and validate before really committing to something that endangers the future of a development studio, including all future revenue of all cohorts of your game. Yeah, makes makes total sense. Like, do, do you think like the, the model of actually uh, structuring companies in a way where, you know, because I've, I've seen so many deals happen now where uh, like equity fundraising and you're taking half of that for ua that's not good that's not sustainable so there must be an option there to actually build up a model where i've even seen some vcs thinking about this ua credit line uh, as, as an op like you know something that they had have on their service list like it, um, it feels it's gonna grow yes and i mean the challenge is there is a lot of money in the markets and money is really, really cheap yeah. while interest rates are really, really low. So all the money has to go somewhere on top of that on a macro level and that further enforced or further uh, 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 
driven by, by the pandemic that we have seen over the last year and a half, if a market is booming, a lot of people want to invest in such market and there is a limited amount of assets but an unlimited amount of money flowing in that direction, prices go up. And so people try to place money somewhere in this industry or adjacent to this industry. Um, I mean, crypto, NFTs, uh, the blockchain of gaming, all these metaverses uh, that are emerging. It's insane how many new ideas and schemes are invented to build a harbor to attract capital to. And while that obviously fosters innovation and gives people a lot of leeway to try out things, often it feels like there is not a lot of substance to where suddenly amounts are going that five years ago you would have needed to sell your kidney for. Um, so it's a current trend in the market. It will self-correct sooner or later. So I'm not really worried about that part. Um, and until then, it does foster innovation. Um, a lot of people will make money. A lot of people will lose money. It's just the way things are. But all in all, the availability of a lot of capital for an industry is obviously for that industry always a good thing in the first place because you can do more things. And in the end, this will hopefully lead to more great games. Yeah. I want to touch base on this correction that will eventually happen. Like, do you do you feel that we might end up in a situation that happened just probably ten years ago when Zynga kind of like created this bad rep for gaming? Like, uh, <laughs> like, do you think we could even end up in that situation that gaming becomes unpopular again with the financiers who don't understand the industry? Um. I don't see that risk, to be honest. So I think gaming, gaming per se is too big and too relevant to not be interesting for investors. Those days are over. And while the industry has been shunned over the past decade and chronically underestimated by literally everybody who was investing in anything, um, it is completely different these days and there is no way of going back there. Mm. I think there is a way of our investors look at, at track, track, uh, track record as well as um, excellence and proper management. Um, and that is about mitigating risks. And while in the gaming industry, this is hard. Um, and the market is super competitive. There are companies who are doing a decent job doing it. And um, those will always attract investors. There will always be investments and companies who are leaning a little bit more on the risky side, where you have higher risk, but you have higher rewards as well. And I think what will change over the ups and downs of future stock markets to come will be the appetite for more risk or the tolerance for bad risk management, shooting for the moon, I guess. Um, there is reason for both ends of the scale when it comes to risk management and how to approach things. 
and in general uh, market situation where there is just a lot of money and not enough assets that you can invest in tilts the model a little bit more to the risk accepting side which is fostering innovation and some of the shots towards the moon might produce a landing who knows yeah yeah that's totally true uh before we go to the final questions i wanted to ask you actually on the innovation side a bit more what do you what are your sort of thoughts on the metaverse the nfts is that area where you've seen interesting stuff that uh you sort of like changed your mind about recently <laughs> like is there, there there anything there that is really interesting for you for gaming i like all the all the visions that are there so the metaverses the nfts obviously this this to some extent is desirable i mean i've i've been a fan of books like ready player one for ages um, and virtual worlds per se have been intriguing like since second life i guess <laughs> yeah yeah and that's ages ago right and now we have this technology and uh, the uh, broad penetration in the populations as well as the resources available to really create something like that what remains to be proven i guess is that this resonates with a lot of people um, looking at it just from a pure business and not from a consumer side um, i guess anything that doesn't attract like a hundred million people is not relevant in a world where you don't work with subscriptions or upfront prices but a more backloaded free-to-play inspired business model at least um, so far i haven't seen anything come even close to that um, and from a business perspective that for me would be the rule of thumb if somebody if somebody with a metaverse reaches 100 million people that might be relevant hmm. um, then it's worth looking at it from a business perspective. Before that, it is interesting technology and maybe an interesting product, but not a business that will set a new market trend to an extent that there is a new platform, there is uh, a new way of interacting with each other. Um, it's just a high hurdle. Yeah, yeah, I think the. I'm waiting for the high ARPU metaverse. That's like when that happens. <laughs> Let's see when that happens. Hey, hey, Klaus, I have some final questions for you. Uh, I always ask uh, if the guest has a favorite book or something that they really cherish. Do you have a book like that and why? Um, the list of books that really influenced me is really, really long. Um, back, Even back in my childhood when you had to get on your bicycle to ride to the local library to get books. Um, I, I basically lived there for years. Um, so I can't narrow it down to um, one particular book. The obvious ones are high on the list, obviously, like The Lord of the Rings, Ready Player One I already mentioned before. So all the geeky stuff that uh, reinforced the way of how I see the world and uh, brought some heroism into it and some beautiful stories. The one that I read lately that influenced me to some extent is uh, The Tyranny of Merit by Michael Sandel, um, 
which talks in a pretty interesting way about uh, decision-making processes and mood-making processes in a modern society. Um, it's something that gave me something to think about um, because I, especially in the, in the context of recent waves of populism combined with um, uh, the pandemic and all the good and bad things that they brought up in humanity and the upcoming yeah, uh, urge, uh, urge on the climate crisis topic, I guess, sometimes makes me doubt about whether humanity is able to weather the storm that it set itself up for. Um, and that brought some interesting perspectives to it. Nice. Very interesting. Uh, do you do you have a story that shaped you in how you approach your work today? One same then with books. Um, what I try to find is underlying patterns in stories, and uh, the underlying pattern that always shaped me was people, the people around me, the people not around me. Um, how they think about things, how they challenge me, how they drive me to be a better version of myself and how they complement my strengths and weaknesses and how I complement those. That then ultimately leads to more fun, more success, better outcomes for everybody. That is, that is my overarching lesson that I took of all the stories, experiences, and things that happened to me over over my career and that I'm more conscious about than ever. Nice, that's really good. Hey, final question for you, Klaus. Uh, if there's entrepreneurs out there who want to know more about Phoenix Games, uh, wh what's the best way to, to get in contact with you? Um, I'm obviously on all the networking social media platforms, so whether it is old people's Facebook, as well yeah. as LinkedIn, Twitter. Uh, I have a homepage with a contact form uh, and obviously class at phoenixgames.com uh, is the email that reaches me directly. So um, whatever way you want to choose, feel free to get in touch with whatever. Nice. Hey, Klaus, this was so great. Really happy to chat with you and so many interesting topics here. <laughs> was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Hey, take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. If you like our content, please do hit follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please do go and check out our weekly newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. It's going to go out on Friday mornings where I share all the interest areas for myself in gaming startups. So check it out and I'll see you next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.